We'll continue our series, Centering on Ministry, in just a bit, and I will explain what that title means and how much longer we have to go for that after uh, we go through some announcements, some things to remind you of. This coming Wednesday begins our midweek program. We take the summer off, as most of you know, for midweek. It starts up again on Wednesday, 7 o'clock at Patrick Henry Middle School. So it does not meet here, but about a mile from here on Hall Road. And we have a full complement of services, nursery, toddler, K through uh, 5, uh, community kids program, 6 through 12 for the junior and senior high, high impact students ministry, and then two classes for adults are being offered. One is a survey through the Old Testament Minor Prophets. Dr. Robert McCabe from Detroit Baptist Seminary will be with us to teach that for the semester. And then I'll be leading a class on marriage called Committed Marriage, and the details of that are listed in your program. So uh, take a look at that, and if uh, you're interested in either of those two classes, if you have kids, we have stuff for them, as I've said. Uh, We'd like to have an approximate number of how many folks are coming for the two adult classes because we have notebooks for those, and we'd like to know how many of those to to print. So if you would uh, register for that, insert it in your program today, And the last several weeks has been a registration form with those two classes listed, and you can check off which one you want and turn it in at the information center over by the windows here before you leave today. So that's this uh, coming Wednesday. Next Sunday, next Sunday night, is our uh, anniversary dinner. We call it our celebration dinner because our church started uh, 11 years ago in uh, September. And so every September, sometimes first week of October, But around this time, we have an anniversary dinner and uh, just celebrate God's grace to us over these these years. We always have a good time together and um, know that uh, this year will be no exception. We don't have any kind of elaborate program. It's just a time to fellowship together, have a, a good meal together. But one of the things we do, and we pretty much only do it on this particular occasion, and that is hear from the church family with regard to God's grace in your life over the last year. So I encourage you to think about offering a word or two of testimony as to how God has worked in in your life over this last year. That's always an encouragement to the rest of the church family. When I grew up in church as a kid, we used to have Sunday night service, uh, and Sunday night service was often a time when we would have testimonies, and uh, that was always an encouraging time. But we we don't meet together on Sunday evenings, as you know. We have our home groups. So we have fewer occasions where everybody is together, and that's why this is a very special occasion for us to come together and then to hear from one another as to how God has worked in our lives. So think about that. I would encourage you, uh, if God uh, has been good to you this past uh, year, then to encourage the rest of the uh, uh, church body with how that's happened. That's one week from tonight. Now, for that, you need tickets, and the tickets are available at the uh, Resource Center. And the cost is, is $5 per person. That helps us offset the cost of the dinner uh, just a bit. Now, it's $20 maximum per family. So if you have uh, four kids, uh, you're not paying $30. You pay $20 for you and the, your spouse and the four kids. And uh, it's a $20 maximum. But you need to get those tickets today before you leave at the Resource Center. All right? And then coming up, uh, two weeks from today, October 7th, we start up anew our uh, community groups, the home groups that meet on Sunday nights. So those have been uh, off since uh, late uh, August or mid-August, and now they're going to start up again on October the 7th. 
And there's inserted in your program today, has been for the last few weeks, a card uh, for you to enroll. If you did not participate in community groups last year on a regular basis, then, and you want to this year, then you need to let us know so we can assign you to a group. And we need to know that, like, today. So check off that box on the card, turn in the card at the uh, information center, and then we'll contact you about which group you would you would be in. Those of you that did participate uh, fairly regularly last year, we're assuming you're doing that again this year, so you don't have to turn one of those, those cards in, okay? So that's two weeks from today. And then moving forward a little bit further, I'm almost done, October 20, October 20, Saturday, October 20th, 4.30, we're having our annual hayride and bonfire for the whole family. That's going to be at Fun Acres in South Rockwood. It's the first time we've gone there. My family has gone there a couple of times, and they've got a really nice uh, spread there, a place for a bonfire. We'll have access to one of their pole barns for our, for our meal together. And uh, the hayride, they also have a corn maze. They have some stuff for the kids to, uh, to play with there as well. So we'll start at 4.30, and the uh, hayride and the corn maze stuff uh, will happen in that first hour and a half. Then at 6 o'clock, we will have, uh, we'll have dinner, and then after that, we'll have the bonfire. And that schedule is listed on a flyer that was inserted in your program today, so you can take a look at that. And you need tickets for that as well, okay? So get those at the Resource Center. That's Saturday, October 20th, last announcement. Uh, four weeks from today, October 21, is our next newcomer's orientation. This is listed in today's program as well. But newcomer's orientation is for, as the name suggests, those who are new to our church. Uh, you have been visiting. You've been a guest. Uh, you're checking us out. We offer this periodically throughout the year to give additional information to those uh, who are looking for a church. It doesn't obligate you in any way. It's just for information and it's a four-week class that I teach. We go through a booklet of material, tells you about who we are, where we've come from, what we believe, what we hope to do in the future. That starts on the 21st, and we'll go for four weeks during this hour on each of those four weeks, okay? I think that uh, covers what I, what I want to uh, deal with. All of that stuff is listed in your program, so please pay attention to that. If you will, turn in your Bible to Jude, Jude. If you don't know where Jude is, it's the second to the last book in the Bible. So if you just go all the way to the back, Revelation, and just before Revelation, you'll have one page. That is Jude, <clears throat> because Jude is only one chapter. And we will look at a passage in Jude in just a bit as part of our series called Centering on Ministry. Now, we have... For exactly today is two months we've been going through this series centering on ministry. We have exactly one month left to finish it. So I'll briefly rehearse what that is, what we have looked at, and what we're going to look at in the remaining few, few weeks. But I decided to take this three-month segment to center on ministry for this reason. Most of you know that after a 12-year search, our church is only 11 years old, but we've been searching for a place as a permanent home even before we started as to where that would be. And after renting facilities for all of this time, this is our fourth school that we have met in on Sunday mornings. I don't have an absolute accurate count on how many different facilities that we have rented for dinners and baptisms and Sunday and Wednesday and all of that, but it is a few dozen at least. So after all of that, 
May 10 of this year, we signed to purchase a building. And that building is just down Van Horn here near, near Fort Street. It's the former William Taylor Elementary School in Trenton. So we purchased that school. It closed a couple of years ago, and that's going to be our, our permanent location. It's being renovated now to prepare for us to move into as soon as we can. But we call that building and have for all of these years that we've been looking for a place, rather than calling it a church, we call it our, our ministry center. And the reason we do that is simply to signify that the church is God's people. It's not brick and mortar. It's not, uh, it's not a building. The building is a, is a tool, a resource for ministry to occur. So ministry, service will take place there. Training for service will take place there. We will meet there as we, as we do here and worship the Lord together and learn together. Uh, but we call it our ministry center. And so I wanted to take these three months for us to prepare to move in. And I've called it then centering on ministry, focusing our attention on what we need to do to be ready to hit the ground uh, running when we move into our building. And so we have looked at the need for us to prepare ourselves uh, mentally, kind of get our game face on, you've heard me say, over these uh, last uh, couple, of, couple of months, uh, prepare physically, that is, organize worker groups and, uh, and days for some things that we're going to need to, to do to get it ready over the next few months, and to organize uh, evangelistically and administratively and spiritually. We've been going through all of that. And last week we began, or the last couple of weeks, we began looking at the need to prepare ourselves evangelistically, that God has given us this location now for us to intentionally and emphatically seek to reach those that he has placed in our circle of influence now. And in order for us to do that, we need to be prepared to evangelistically seek to reach the folks in that community and beyond. And to do that, I encouraged you a couple of weeks ago from Colossians chapter 4, to look for opportunities, to pray for boldness, to pursue credibility in the way we behave toward those that we're trying to reach, to practice grace in our speech. That's all stuff that Colossians chapter 4 tells us to do. And then last week, we started looking at the need, if we're going to be successful from a God-centered perspective in reaching folks with the gospel and seeing them grow in the gospel, one of the things we have to do is know the audience know something about the people that we're, we're trying to reach. And as we know the audience, as we think about the audience that we're trying to reach and thus try to be as effective as possible, I said last week that before we look at the human audience that we're trying to reach, we need to remember that the ultimate audience is always God. And we saw from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the last chapter of the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote before he was executed for his faith in Christ, the last letter that he wrote, he says in that last chapter, he says to Timothy, Timothy, in the presence of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, I solemnly give you this charge. And then he says, preach the word. And so we need to remember that God is watching. God is our witness, that we are carrying out our ministry and our lives in the face of God before God. And that is most important. And how we do what we do before God, in the presence of God, is what's most important. And whether or not we are successful in the eyes of the world 
doesn't matter as long as we're successful in the eyes of God. And so our first audience is God, and therefore that will shape what we do. It will shape how we, we do it. But we also need to know the human audience that God has called us to reach. And I said last week that we need to know in, uh, regarding our audience what they need. As we know about them, we need to know what they need. And I add, not just know what they think they need, not just know what people tell you they need. <laughs> See, God wrote a book, and He tells us what we and others need. And so it's not just what they think they need, what they tell us they need, it's what they really need. And I described that what image bearers, those made marvelously in the image of God, who bear His personal image because they have intellect and they have will and they have emotion, that because of all of those, they need to have truth for the mind and love for uh, the emotion and will for, uh, which means purpose in life. Or that actually fits our mission statement for our church, which is Community Baptist Church exists to help people do three things. Learn about God, love Him and others, and live for His purpose. And so that's what people really need. Now, that sounds simple. That is a mouthful. That's, that's a lifetime of ministry <laughs> to help people learn about God, learn to love Him and love others, and to live for the purpose that He's given us. So we need to know what they really need. They need that. But as we know our audience, and if we're going to be effective, I said last week, we also need to know how they perceive us. We know something about them because we know what God has said all of us need, and He has called us now to supply that through the ministry of His Word. But if we're going to be effective, we also need to know how it is that they perceive us. And I gave some passages that show the need to be perceived in an accurate way. Whether or not people take what we are, if we're accurately presented, whether or not they take that as positive is one thing. As long as it's accurately portrayed, I'm good with that. And then if people don't like who we are, there's nothing, I can, there's nothing we can do, right? But we need to make sure that what they know about us is accurate. So, for instance, if people think that our church wants their money, that's inaccurate. I hope. It's inaccurate. And so I want to take steps to correct that inaccuracy. And then once I've taken steps to correct that inaccuracy, if you still don't like me, okay. Nothing I can do. Um, that uh, you think you're holier than thou. People think that about Christians, particularly about certain kinds of Christians like us. <laughs> holier than thou. I believe that's inaccurate. I don't, I don't believe we think that. We believe that we are the undeserving recipients of the grace of God. And we are simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. That's what we're doing. And so that being the, the, the case, we want to correct that inaccuracy. But that means knowing how it is that you're, you're perceived, right? So I left off last week talking about uh, how people perceive us. And if you wanted a quaint statement of descriptors for our church, it would be this. This is a very commonly used way to describe churches like ours. Independent, fundamental, Baptist. It's sometimes just, it's now become an acronym, just IFB. 
And then there's IFB little x. That's IFB extreme. And I'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks. Okay? But there's IFB, independent, fundamental Baptist. And we left off last week with me saying that and some of you cringing. You go, yikes. Fundamental, I did not know that. Um, that scares me, let alone scaring them. What do you mean? Because I don't hear you, Brown, or others using that term a lot for us. And you're right, you don't. It's an accurate description of us if properly understood. But the reason you don't hear me use that term very much is because it is horribly misunderstood. The term has been co-opted by the media to refer to anybody who's serious about two qualities, serious about religion and crazy. If you're those two things, you're a fundamentalist. You can be a Mormon fundamentalist. You can be an Islamic fundamentalist. You can be a, a Christian fundamentalist. There are all kinds of them, but they have these two things in common. They're serious about religion and they're crazy. And so now that term has been used in ways that it was not originally coined so that now it's become a pejorative even. Now it's become an accusation. So in knowing your audience and knowing how you're perceived, it's incumbent upon you to be accurately portrayed as, as much as possible. And so over these 11 years, I have not used the term fundamental hardly at all. I've used the term Bible believer and serious Bible believers. Serious Bible believers who are not crazy. That's my line, okay? But that's really what we are. Now, why don't, why, we don't use that term because it's been co-opted, and I sensed last week and this week that most of you agree. You've heard that term. You're actually glad that if you bring somebody to our church, I'm not going to be harping on the fact that we're fundamental and all of that because that could scare them to death, right? But I do want to spend this week talking about where that came from and then see that it was co-opted from something that was actually quite good. And then I want to deal with the other two terms, independent and Baptist, over the next few weeks. Because one of those other terms, Baptist, is undergoing a very similar, in my considered opinion, a very similar transformation as has fundamental. Really good, but being associated with some stuff that is really bad. And over the next few weeks, I want to show you that. So I want to start with fundamental, okay? Uh, what, what was that? Where did, where did that, that come from? Well, the term fundamental, fundamentalist was coined in 1920. And a Bible-believing Christian writer, Curtis Lee Laws, wrote in a Christian periodical called The Watchman Examiner, 1920, he wrote that I propose that those who are willing to do, and I'm quoting now, battle royal for the truths of Scripture be called fundamentalists. That's what, uh, that's what he proposed, and it caught on. Those who believed the foundational truths of Orthodox Christianity 
and who were willing to do, and this is his term, battle royal for that. That is, they're willing to fight for that. They're willing to lose stuff for that. They're willing to disassociate from people who don't believe that. They're really serious about that. Those who believe these foundational orthodox truths of Christianity and are willing to do battle royal for those, that they be called fundamentalists, 1920. And it caught on. Now, I want to tell you why he was thinking about that, why he was thinking about these foundational orthodox truths of Christianity and doing battle royal, in his words, for them. I'll give you a bit of history with regard to that. But before we look at the history, was, was he on to something in this idea of being willing to fight for truth? And the answer is yes. Now, when I say fight, I don't mean physically, okay? But is he willing to do battle royal, intellectually, scripturally, marshalling all the arguments we can to defend the truth, but also uh, expose error? Was he right in saying that? That's why I had you turn to Jude. Verse 3 of Jude. And Jude says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, let me stop there. Jude is saying, I was looking forward to, eagerly, writing to you about the gospel and our shared salvation. But, as important as that is, and as enthusiastic as I am for that, I felt I had to write to you about this need to earnestly contend. So, fight. And fight enthusiastically, earnestly. For what? For the faith that was once entrusted, once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, why did he feel he needed to do that? Why was that so urgent for him? Verse 4, he says, Because, for, certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. These are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Then he goes on to talk about this need to battle departures from the faith which has once for all been delivered to the saints and to earnestly contend for that. So Jude is saying that, and therefore Curtis Lee Laws is right to say that there need to be people who are willing to do battle royal for the foundational truths of Orthodox Christianity. Now, what was going on about a hundred years ago that made it necessary for laws to write in the Watchman Examiner that I proposed that people who fit that category be called fundamentalists? What was going on? Let me give you a, a little bit of, of history with regard to what was going on. You all know, or you may know, that in 1859... A book came out called The Origin of Species by a fellow named Charles Darwin. 
Well, Darwin's theory of natural selection and of, of evolution was huge news. And it created a huge challenge to Bible-believing Christians. Well, now what? If Darwin is right, then what about what the Bible says? What about the Bible saying, as we've believed for centuries, and some of us still believe, that God created the world in six 24-hour days? What are we going to do with that? Well, people started just running for the exits. Theologians started finding cover. We've got to find ways to, to deal with this. And so some tried to, over time, deal with it through something called the day-age theory. Anybody familiar with that? These are not really days like we know days, but rather these are ages. I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Here's why. The word for day in your Old Testament in Hebrew is yom, like yom kippur, day of atonement. And so when Moses writes in, in Genesis chapter 1, and the evening and the morning were the first yom, the first day, every time in your Old Testament, every time, the word day is used with an, with an, an ordinal, with a number. It refers to a regular day. One. Secondly, Moses seems to take pains to say, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Okay, what comprises this first day? Evening and morning. Okay? Not an age, not an undefined period of time. Evening and morning. Further, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Exodus 20, 8 through 11. This is God giving the law to Moses. And when he gives the command to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, he gives the reason for that. For in six days the Lord your God created the heaven and the earth and everything that is in them. And then he's saying now, and then on the seventh day he rested. Okay? So God is comparing this day that you're to rest with the days, the six days in which he created everything. Well, I could go for an endless period of time undescript where I get to rest. I'm good with that. But God intended that day to be how long? One regular 24-hour period. And he compares that day to the six days of creation. And so try though you might, you can't. But people were running for the exits and coming up with all kinds of theories, and some just gave it up. Some just said, evolution's right, the Bible's wrong. In fact, now we've got to rethink this whole thing about the Bible. We thought, Moses, we thought Moses wrote Genesis. Well, there was good reason for that. Because Jesus would quote stuff from Genesis. And he would say, Moses said to you. So Jesus is like a really good authority on this, this stuff. So we thought Moses wrote it. And we thought Moses wrote it in the 15th century B.C. Now, why did we think that? Well, because... Uh, the Bible tells us that. If you, if you will, turn to your Old Testament, first part of your Bible, and turn to 1 Kings.
1 Kings 6. In verse 1, 1 Kings 6, 1. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt. All right, so stop there. So Moses had something to do with that, right? The Israelites coming out of Egypt. So that first line is talking about the time period of a guy named Moses. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeev, the second month he began to build the temple of the Lord. And so this is starting to give a time frame in which Solomon begins to build the temple. It's giving that date, and it's saying Solomon began to build the temple in the 480th year after the Exodus and in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. So if I knew the fourth year of Solomon's reign, I could then go back 480 years and know when the Exodus occurred. Solomon's reign began in 970 B.C., 970 B.C. So in the fourth year of his reign, he's in 966 B.C. 480 years prior to that, remember we're in B.C., we go back. 480 years prior to that is 1446 B.C. That's why I say the 15th century before Christ. The Bible says that's when the Exodus happened. Okay? So if you want to know who the Pharaoh was, find out who the Pharaoh was in the 15th century B.C. And it was not Ramses. I mean, I love the Ten Commandments movie, but they've got Ramses as the guy. It was not Ramses. Amenhotep. Doesn't roll off the tongue as cool, though. I mean, there was Ramses, but he was a few hundred years later. And so, 15th century B.C., the Bible says that. If you're going to be a Bible believer, you've got to do something with that. But the people who were running for the exits and said, you know, it's evolution. And now, with evolution, I mean, we don't have ready-made, we don't have two ready-made people named Adam and Eve who were given instructions by God in a garden. We don't have any of that. So where did all this belief in Yahweh come from? The God of Israel. What didn't happen that way, Moses didn't do, write this. And it didn't happen the way that it said in the first five books. So where did this come from? This evolved, this religion of Israel, this religion of Yahweh evolved over time, say they. Well, then where did these books come from? First five books, the books of Moses. Well, here's what they said. Here's where they come from. I'm going to give you four letters, and I'm not making this up. I mean, other stuff I make up, but this I'm not making up, okay? J-E-D-P. J-E-D-P. This is what they said. The J-E-D-P theory. And what they said was, it wasn't written by Moses. It wasn't written in the 15th century B.C. It was written much later. And it was written by at least four different people, identified simply as J and E and D and P. Now, why these, these letters? I'll tell you in a minute. What do they stand for? But the reason they're given letters is because we don't know their names. We don't know who they were. And the reason we don't know their names and we don't know who they were is because we're making this up. That's just an editorial. 
Okay, that's just as an aside. J is the Jehovah writer. Jehovah is the anglicized uh, version of Yahweh. And so there are certain parts of those first five books where the name of God is primarily Yahweh, Jehovah. And so that's one writer, the Jehovah writer. But then there's, there's another writer, the E writer, and he is the, he is the Elohim writer. Elohim is another Hebrew word for God. And there are sections of the first five books in which Elohim rather than, than Yahweh is the primary. So there's the Elohim writer, and there's the, there's the Jehovah writer, and then there's the D writer, the Deuteronomist. That's whoever wrote Deuteronomy. The other three people at least wrote the first four books, and the Deuteronomist wrote the fifth one, Deuteronomy because there's language and there's characteristics of that that are not identical to the first four. So J-E-D-N-P is the priestly writer. He wrote, for instance, sections of Leviticus, because in Leviticus you've got, what's Leviticus named for? The Levitical priests. And it's got all the stuff about their garments and their, uh, and their, um, and their ceremonies and their duties and, and all of that. So you've got J and E and D and P. Well, we've got a battle brewing here. And you have got major denominational seminaries teaching evolution in contradiction to the Bible. And you have got major se- denominational seminaries and schools teaching theories like JEDP. And you've got Bible-believing people working at those places and in those denominations. Now what do you do? You're employed by, for instance, Princeton Theological Seminary. Princeton Seminary is the seminary of the Presbyterian Church in the USA. Now if you're employed there and that's going on, what are you going to do? Well, ultimately, you know, this went from evolution, J-E-D-P, to just a denial of the inspiration of the Bible. Therefore, a denial of the inerrancy of the Bible. And the foundation of Orthodox Christianity has been torn away. So if you're a guy named J. Gresham Machen, and you're teaching at Princeton Seminary, here's what you do. You quit. And if you're a guy named Robert Dick Wilson, you quit. And if you are Cornelius Van Til, you quit. And several of these guys said, we resign because we cannot condone what's being taught. And they started their own seminary. Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia was started by those guys. I was privileged to take doctoral classes at that seminary in Van Til Hall, in Machen Hall. Really cool. But do you see now that here's an occasion for people to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints? And it costs people. It costs people retirements. That's just one example. This happened at schools all over, denominations all over, and it cost people. They lost, some of them lost their libraries their own personal libraries. 
They lost their retirement, as I say. It was costly, and it was, and it was ugly, but it was right. So in 1910, there was a series of... Uh, there was a series of 12 booklets that were published, 1910. And those booklets were called the Fundamentals. And conservative Bible-believing theologians wrote articles in those 12 booklets about issues related to Orthodox Christianity, centered primarily around five fundamental issues. And those five fundamental issues were the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible first, the virgin birth of Christ, that he was really virgin born because now miracles are gone, that Christ's death was an atonement for sin. Fourthly, that he really bodily rose from the grave and the historical reality of the miracles given in Scripture. So in short, the supernatural character of Christianity was affirmed. And these are bedrock issues, are they not? 1910, 12 booklets centered on, not exclusive to, but centered on these, these five fundamental issues. And then 10 years later, laws says people who believe that stuff should be called fundamentalists. And over the next few decades, you had people leaving denominations, starting new denominations, people leaving schools, starting new schools, all because of this denial of these fundamental issues in Christianity. Now, here's another event that then happens at around that time. 1910, publication of the Fundamentals. 1920, Laws, Coins, Fundamentalist. 1925, Dayton, Tennessee, the Scopes Monkey Trial. Yeah, you got all this evolution stuff going on. All this evolution being taught. And the folk down in Dayton don't like it. And Tennessee passes a law outlawing the teaching of evolution. John Scopes, a young biology teacher, decides to take it on. He's urged to do so by a group that perhaps you've heard of called the American Civil Liberties Union. You go, really, those snakes? I mean, those people were around uh, that long ago. So Scopes purposely violates the law by teaching evolution. He's looking to get prosecuted because they want to test this case. And they do, and the case is famous and infamous. But the ACLU finances a lawyer from Chicago to take on the case and defend Scopes. Uh, his name is Clarence Darrow. And uh, he, he was like a Johnny Cochran of his day. Alan Dershowitz, defending sometimes, you know, infamous people, Leopold and Loeb, if you want to look those guys up. They were accused of killing their parents. He defended them. Darrow did, successfully. So he takes it on. He comes down to date. And then the prosecutor in the case is a native son of Dayton, Tennessee, William Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan ran for president, ran for president three times, was, was nominated on the Democratic ticket three times to run for president. In 1896, at the Democratic National Convention, he gave what is still considered to be 
the most famous speech ever given at a political convention. And it was called the Cross of Gold speech. And so Brian was Secretary of State. At one time, he was just uh, an accomplished, well-known politician, but also a fundamentalist. So here we go. We get the media down there, down in Dayton. You got guys like H.L. Mencken writing for the Baltimore Evening Sun, recording what's happening. And the gist of it is this. The folks in Dayton and the fundamentalists came out looking very foolish. Now, ultimately, the judge ruled against Scopes, so he lost. But we lost the larger war because in the media, fundamentalists became backwoods ignoramuses. And that stereotype has continued. Now, in some ways, that stereotype has continued and is well-deserved. And I have to wrap up shortly but is well-deserved because one of the things that happened over the ensuing decades is that fundamentalists became very suspicious of academia. And as a result, whereas in the past, if you were going to be a pastor, you would go to school, you would go to seminary, you would be credentialed, you would get ordination, you'd be ordained and so on, all the stuff that a guy like me or a guy like Pastor Matt has, has done, that was the norm Now, guys just were self-educated. We don't need academia. In fact, we're distrustful of that. We'll start our own schools. And so you had the Bible school movement now. Our own colleges. Almost all of these colleges, many, many of these colleges, were and are unaccredited. And they were Bible schools. And as a result of that, frankly, you had a number of guys coming out, going into the pastorate, fundamentalists, but who were ill-informed. And the name fundamentalist continued to degenerate. And it's one of the reasons, then, that I have chosen not to. I am a historic fundamentalist. Historic in the sense 1910, 1920 but I am not what one guy called an hysteric fundamentalist. So now you got the guys who are, and and I'm not trying to be mean, but they're just unlearned. But they're representing now Bible-believing Christians. And they're saying things like, there is one translation in English that came from God, one. And it's the King James Bible. And I'm telling you, there are a bunch of King James only, King James 1611 people out there. Now, I'm all for the King James. But have you ever seen a 1611 copy of the King James Bible? It is written in Middle English, and you and I am not making this up. You can't read it. It's in a completely different kind of English. And yet, we are King James 1611, baby. We got hats that say KJV 1611. I'm telling you. T-shirts. It's on the sign. It's on the website. 1611. 
and you can't read it. But that is what has passed now for fundamentalism over the last several decades. Okay? So we, I believe most of you agree, we are Bible believers who are willing to do battle royal for the foundational truths of Christianity. But we also believe that God's word can be defended against anybody's proposition, against any ism out there, and we need not be afraid of being educated. And so we're a different breed of fundamentalist, unfortunately. And therefore, I don't use it. Now, next three weeks, I want to apply the similar kind of analysis to Baptist. And I want you to see what has started out as beautiful, has degenerated, and, in my opinion, we are now being associated with people who have, no, who have nothing to do with what we're like or what we believe. And as we know our audience and what they perceive about us, fundamentalist is an issue, but I believe Baptist is fast becoming a similar kind of issue. And I'm going to make that case over the next three weeks, okay? All right. Let's pray together, and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for those who have gone before us and who have contended for the faith. We thank you that they understood what the essentials of the faith were. And they understood that if those foundations be removed, that the superstructure will crumble. I thank you for the foundation of your word, the sure foundation that cannot be toppled. But there are many who have tried, many who are trying. Help us, Lord, with the issues that we are faced with in our day. Does your word teach homosexuality is sin? It does. But the world is denying it, and many Christians, many professing Christians are running for the exits. We have seen this before. We will have occasion to contend for what your word says. Help us, Lord, to be willing to do that. But help us to do so with the love of Christ. Help us to do so with the, the issues clearly framed and clearly based upon the, the teaching of your word. And so we thank you for those who have gone before. And, Lord, we bemoan the way some have used these good words, these good descriptors, and used them in ways that have now become pejoratives, and they've been co-opted. We ask you to help us to have wisdom then as we move forward, as we seek to reach our community, to understand how we're perceived, and to give an accurate presentation of Christ, an accurate pre presentation of we as as his ambassadors. And having done so, we will trust you completely with all of the results. Go with us this week as we serve you. Grant us safety and bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.